Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us for the Out of the Question podcast. Charles Roberts and I today are going to ask this question, or I should say, we're going to get behind the question, when is it time to celebrate political victories? Now, that may seem odd, but there have been in recent weeks some significant, you might say, political victories for the side of those who endeavor to obey God. So, Charles, explain why we've posed the question this way. Well, certainly Christians and people of general good faith are concerned about the direction our nation has taken these United States over the past couple of years. I mean, if we go back far enough, there's always people wringing their hands about the direction of the country. But what has been offered to the believers in God's word and his law uh, continually and increasingly over the decades is that the solution to the evil that has beset your culture and your nation is to get involved in politics and to elect candidate A or B over candidate C. And uh, that, that will be the path to national renewal and, and righteousness and, and holiness and prosperity and all the rest of it. And it's something that uh, our founder, Dr. Rushduni, uh, talked about frequently, and that is that with the foundation of human society being the pretended godhood of man, then the highest expression of that godhood is government, is human institutions with some sort of political institution at the, at the epitome as the highest expression of man's will to power. And so we see on a Christian level, whenever we find intense political elections, people are rejoicing in the streets that one candidate got elected and the other was defeated. And generally it's considered this candidate is more Christian or more sympathetic to Christian values than the other. I don't know if some of these folks, I'd like to think that increasing numbers stop to ask, why is it that we elected or that candidate was elected that was supposed to be our path out of the misery? And yet, nothing seems to have changed, or you go through this cycle time and again. So that's what's behind this question, and it certainly is connected to recent events. First of all, I want people to understand that when there is a political victory of a candidate who's at least saying and demonstrating a aversion to what another candidate promises and what his or her fruits have demonstrated in the past, we should have a spirit of thanksgiving saying there's a flood, but we didn't drown. So in other words, partial victories are something to thank God for. We're not saying that any political victory shouldn't be recognized as this is better than what it could be. What you're saying, Charles, is that our hope can't be in politics. Yes, and I'm afraid that is uh, the real problem. Maybe I have a more <laughs> negative take on it, perhaps, than you do. But uh, let me put, in my words, I would put it this way. If I'm on 
a speeding car headed for hell, I'd rather be going at 50 miles an hour rather than 500 miles an hour. Because at least at 50 miles an hour, I might have an opportunity to do something about it. If I don't realize that that's where the car is headed, I never will. Right. Well, one of the things that I have relished for the past now almost two years in this whole crisis that I believe has been a manufactured crisis is that some people are waking up. And uh, I was joking with you when we were discussing what we were going to talk about is that maybe we should ask the question, are puppies and bathrooms enough to change the course of society? And some people go, what is she talking about? Well, we had people up in arms because Dr. Anthony Fauci had done experiments on beagles and they were more concerned with the beagles than they were with the people who were being experimented. And then parents at a certain school district in Virginia were up in arms because a boy dressed as a girl to go into the bathroom. And so now the bathroom issue is probably what got an election in Virginia to go differently than it would have. But you understand that these folks were upset because their lives might have been disrupted by this or something tweaked them that said, this is wrong. A girl got raped in a bathroom. But the point is, that's not really the problem with the public school system. And experimenting and torturing puppies is not what's wrong with the healthcare industry in our country. So it's very easy to celebrate, look, we won there, we'll win other places without recognizing in either case, the ax has not gone to the root. That is precisely the problem. And uh, we, we have these symptoms that we want to treat rather than the disease. The problem is because of the dumbed down nature of the form of Christianity that many followers of Jesus are exposed to in their churches and various ministries that they support, they don't have the wherewithal or the ability to discern that this is simply all they're being given is a Band-Aid. And whereas the, the real root of the problem, as you use that term, is something far different, they might even be surprised to know, you know what that root problem is. And it goes back to the whole issue of who is God, wh- whose word is absolutely authoritative. Another example of that is I hear this time and again from mostly an older generation of people, which I increasingly have found myself a part of, is if we could just get prayer back in public school or, yeah, it all started when they took prayer out of public school. That's a prime example of not really realizing what the problem is. No, the problem is not that they took prayer out. Okay, to to go back to what you said earlier, we're grateful, I guess, if there is prayer and Bible reading in a public school. But the root problem is, is the government has no business whatsoever teaching your children anything. They have no authority to do that. And if we have convinced ourselves that they do, or we've been convinced that they do, then we have completely misunderstood the nature of God's law and his requirements for his people. But I don't want people to think that what our point of view is, there is nothing that you could count as a victory because deep down inside, people still have all this inherent sin. I think what we could make use of is at this time where wheats and tares are manifesting in a way that most people have never experienced before, 
parents are now concerned about what their children are learning in schools about the color of their skin and whether that makes them righteous or unrighteous. Or people are learning that there are not just male and female, there could be all this other stuff. So a lot of parents were asleep at the wheel or quite frankly, didn't think it would ever touch them. So praise God, these things touched them. And for the people who have no problem with abortion, but have a lot of problem with animals being mistreated, praise God, something came to light that now becomes a discussion starter. What a what better way to talk about the value of human life when people are upset about the value of a beagle's life? So you say the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. We have talking points now. So I believe instead of sitting back and going, okay, we won, we should recognize that at best a skirmish was won, but there's still a battle going on and there's the overall war. Someone uh, who I've long since forgotten the name made the following statement, even though I've forgotten the name. I've never forgotten the statement. He said that the most truly disadvantaged people in the world are those who are hated for their virtues instead of their vices and who continue to play the game of life with opponents who've long ago abandoned the rules. And I think that statement encapsulizes uh, the point that I'm trying to make in this in that, yes, we can certainly celebrate victories. I have a family doctor who is a very godly man, an excellent physician, and he actually prays with his patients. And uh, for a while, he he would pray that uh, he would pray, thanks. Thank you, Lord. And I won't mention any names, but thank you, Lord, that so-and-so is not currently president, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's true. I, hallelujah, that we don't have the absolute worst people in office uh, for the most part. But again, if we are not able to discern the nature of the problem, then these skirmishes remain nothing but sort of outlying fires that need to put out, whereas our goal should be. And I think this is what got us in these United States, at least in the problem to begin with, is a lack of understanding about God's structure of society with the family as the, the root of that structure and the church and civil government being extensions of that and equally all three under the authority of God's law. I would invite our listeners to go back, but we did an interview some years ago, maybe two years ago now, with uh, Dr. Joe Moorcraft, who wrote an excellent book on the subject of Christianity and politics. There's a lot of interesting and I think helpful discussion. Of course, that was a, even just two or three years ago, it was a very different time than what we're facing now, but I think our listeners will find that a rewarding discussion. Charles, there's nothing new under the sun. We just have different manifestations of pervasive sin that will come up out of the ground at different times. But that physician you referred to, I imagine if he was, as you say he is, that even if another person had ended up winning the presidency or an election, that we would thank God for that too, because we're supposed to give thanks in all things, but recognize that in each case, we have opportunities, and it should never be complacency is our response. Yeah, and I think that has been another factor in um, bringing us to the uh, melees that we need to 
uh, work our way out of through clear biblical understanding is that, yes, if we can just get so-and-so elected, you know, that will solve all of our problems. But politicians are very uh, adept at understanding how people think and manufacturing consent and how often have, if you've been involved in politics on any sort of level, more than just going and voting or sending a few dollars to a political campaign that you happen to uh, agree with, then you know some of the discussions that political uh, uh, aspirants have and the way they court constituents. Now, there are some, uh, and we praise God for it, who are faithful and keep their word. But I, I can tell you personally from experiences I've had in being involved in some of these things, how that's the first thing out the door when some of these folks get elected. Because there too, that, that brings us back to the whole question of what exactly is the, are the issues that we're dealing with that can help us realize that our salvation ultimately is not through politics, it's not through education, as in public schools or graduate degrees from universities. Our salvation is in Christ alone and in his law word alone. And that should be the foundation of everything else that we pursue. But for people who have a heart for certain areas, whether those areas be medicine, politics, law, education, whatever it is, we have to have our priorities present, furthering the crown rights of Jesus Christ, seeking the kingdom and God's justice, and be willing along the way to bring people along. And I've discovered, for example, the people who are up in arms about education and what they're teaching, well, because tares show themselves to be tares, it's been discovered that now on Sesame Street of all places, Big Bird is telling children they should get their COVID-19 vaccination. People are up in arms, but this is what Sesame Street has been doing for years. It's been promoting climate change and multiculturalism. So people need to be shown how they've been duped along the way. Yes, and all of these outlets become, uh, whether we were talking about television, you know, public television or you know, mass entertainment, they, they become the vehicles by which the state's theology, the state's worldview is perpetuated, uh, especially among younger people. But let me hasten to acknowledge, if it's unclear to any of our listeners, that certainly I agree and I believe that one of the reasons we find ourselves in the current situation is related to the withdrawal of Christians who claim to believe the Bible from uh, the public square and from the public sector. You know, and that comes from a pietist dispensational theology that says, you know, ev everything is evil except my inner spiritual life and, and being able to die and go to heaven. That's what the Bible's all about. It's a book about getting to heaven. And that too has contributed to this. But God's word tells us, and in his creation mandate to humanity, is that you are to flourish. You are to subdue the earth and extend my kingdom throughout the world. And that involves what today is generally called politics, but of a very different sort. It has been referred to either in Dr. Rastuni's writings or other that it's, it's the politics of Satan. It's the society, uh, the, the community of Satan. Its highest goal is the perpetuation of state power and authority. Uh, I think we mentioned this in our last discussion, Dr. Rastuni's book, To Be as God. I've been 
rereading that book in the newer edition that was recently issued by the Calcedon Foundation that I commend to all of our listeners. And there's a very interesting discussion in that book concerning the German considered existential philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he makes some statements concerning himself that Dr. Rushduni uh, focused on that are ultimately statist in their input. And quoting Dr. Rushduni here, he says, the modern state saw itself as beyond good and evil, as simply the power center. Not only did the most terrible wars emerge, but, quote, peacetime became a nightmare. Crime increased as morality was despised. The human race after Nietzsche seemed determined to die like him with sexually transmitted diseases. And it's interesting to me, too, that in a much vaunted movie that came out in the year 2012, I believe it was, called Prometheus. It's a sequel to a sci-fi series. There, there was a YouTube video that was released as a part of the movie, but the, the YouTube video did not appear in the movie. And it's about an oligarch type of uh, corporate big shot who is funding space exploration. And in the video, he walks out onto a modern TED talk. And if you watch the video on YouTube, you can hear him whispering something to himself before he walks out to this mass, massive audience to tell them what a great guy is and how he's going to discover great things in the universe. And you have to slow it down and you have to search. But what he was actually whispering to himself was a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. Interesting. Well, if we are going to proceed with our marching orders, I think it's important that Christians prepare. And by Christians, I mean homeschooling parents. Prepare. Teach your children about the current issues that not only we're facing today, but they're likely to face in the future. And consider that the training is about equipping future warriors. I mean, Christianity got pegged as to being a pacifistic sort of thing that nobody gets angry at anybody else. We just take it, turn the other cheek, all that sort of stuff. Of course, when you take those scripture passages out of context, it's easy to disempower um, the people of God. But Every time we hear a new negative report, this person's mandating this, this city is, is going to enforce that, employers are going to do this or that, we must remember that who we are accountable to is God Almighty, and we use the weapons that he's given us. Those weapons include truth, it includes shining light, and ultimately, it's the word of God. So I would challenge people to celebrate when something good has happened, but not to sit back and decide that, okay, I guess we can rest now, because that's exactly what the enemies of God have been working on with God's people, is to think, okay, so now this this group is going to back off. This group is going to say, oh, okay, we lost. We'll be good losers. They're never good losers. The only way a good lo- a loser becomes a good loser is if he converts and submits his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he's a good loser. It certainly helps in terms of understanding what real political victory looks like uh, to be, as you said, fully grounded and, uh, and prepared for what it means to live and, in air quotes, do battle in this world system in which we find ourselves.
And again, it goes back to teaching in the home, in the church, uh, in the Christian school, in homeschool, a clear understanding of what and who we are according to God's word. Uh, the Chalcedon Foundation used to publish a book that I, I, it may still be available. I'm sure it's probably online somewhere, at least I hope it is, called uh, The Church as God's Armory. And the whole concept there is that th- this, this is what we are and who we are as a family or as a church body. You know, we don't come together to see what somebody wore to church or to gossip behind people's back and yammer on about this, that, and the other, or listen to um, what we would deem as a good message and, uh, and then go home and start watching our favorite news broadcast and our favorite corrupt TV show. Right. You know, we are tasked with the hard work of extending the kingdom if we really understand what God's called us to do. Of course, there are some Christians who, you know, completely uh, are down on that idea that we're totally wasting our time by, tro- quote, trying to redeem the culture as if we think we're the ones who can redeem it. Right. Um, so, Charles, you mentioned a book, which I do think is still available. I don't think most people understand what an armory is. So why don't you explain that? And then I think it'll make more sense, the, the perspective that the church is God's armory. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to fly by the seat of my pants on this one. I know generally what it is. But in many, I know in many older communities, when we used to live in upstate New York, there were these old brick buildings that in some cases had been turned into something else. But you said, well, what, what was that before? It was the armory. And that was the place where the local citizen militia or whatever, you know, the law enforcement um, kept the, the weapons, uh, the supplies needed to defend the community, the city, the town. And so this is the place where the, the, the needed supplies were kept and stockpiled uh, when, to be used when needed. Right. So think about that. The, the title is The Church is God's Armory. Well, it doesn't mean we all need to, every church needs to have an armory and supply it with AR-15s or something like that. No, we're not saying that. <laughs> no, we're not saying that. But the armory was also there if there was a natural disaster and there was flooding and you go there to get the sandbags and people would be taking care of their own. So it was a very local thing so that people knew that in the case of need, this is where you go. And I believe that the church is at a wonderful crossroads right now because there are some churches that during the past you know, two years had decided that they couldn't operate as a church unless they were given permission. And then there were other churches that said, oh, no, we have our marching orders from Christ, and so we will continue to be the church. And as we take these concepts that are very clearly stated in Scripture and start teaching people that. So I've been encouraging people, you know, you understand this. Maybe you don't understand it as well as you would like, but start book clubs, start weekly gatherings where you invite people over to discuss things, even if it's things that are happening that we might consider secular issues. But if you're a child of God and you're a soldier of Jesus Christ, then you can insert into these discussions the biblical point of view. And I think we'll make much greater strides if we take it one person at a time. Yeah, I um, consulted the dictionary definition of the term armory, and it's a place where weapons are kept 
but also more in line with what you were talking about, uh, an array of resources available for a particular purpose. Certainly when we think of the weapons of our warfare, we think of our knowledge of God's law word and uh, the resources that we use to better understand uh, those things. But then we also should be thinking along the lines of the resources and the things that God calls us to provide that the humanistic state has largely taken over because Christians have withdrawn. You know, a lot of churches maintain, you know, a food closet, for example, and that's a good thing. But there was a time when churches took that responsibility to the next level or a higher level, I should say. And I'm thinking here of something that took place in the early 20th century in the city of Los Angeles. There was a fabulously well-known preacher by the name of Amy Simple McPherson. She founded a church. I, I believe the building is still there. It's not connected to her church anymore. She passed away some years ago, a very controversial figure called Angelus Temple. And I read a biography of this woman. And whatever you think about women being ordained as pastors and all the rest of it, she was a Pentecostal. So, you know, in that context, it was something they were okay with. But that church at one time, according to the biography I read, they fed thousands and thousands of people meals every day, many of them people who were not down on their luck, immigrant communities, and they didn't do it with one bit of tax money. And at that time, there really, I, I, if I remember the reading correctly, there was nothing like welfare. Uh, the state of California didn't have anything like food stamps or any of the things that we know today that the state you know, prevents, pretends to provide to help people. But interestingly, the success of that project was largely demoted because of the state coming in and saying, well, you know, you're not doing this or we're going to start doing this now. But if you read the early history of that church and that food effort of feeding people, that's an example of the church being an armory and using those things to good purpose. So in God's economy, what that ministry was doing was Christian charity. What the state does is theft because it steals from taxpayers to give to other people. And that's the kind of thing we have to educate people on. You know, I was talking to a man at church yesterday, and, uh, you know, we've gotten to know each other because we sit relatively in the same spot. And he pointed out to me yesterday that f I guess it was 14 years ago, he was a crack addict. He had um, pretty much destroyed his marriage. And he was incarcerated fairly often, and then he bumped into the Salvation Army. Hmm. And he says that, of course, in bumping into the Salvation Army, he also bumped into Jesus Christ. And so he looks back on that, not regretting the past in terms of he's not happy with everything he did, but what he is grateful for is all those things that got him to the point of being converted, having a rebirth, being a new creation in Christ. And quite frankly, talking to him, it, it would be a surprising thing to hear him. If you looked at him, you'd say, really? You know, and I think that's what's funny, because I remember when my husband and I would talk to our kids about things we did when we were younger or things that were not certainly in line with scripture, but we wanted them to know that it was wrong. And they'd go, no way, not you and dad, you and dad, you could never do that. Well, that's the whole point of being new creations, that God really 
reworks us from the bottom up. Yes, we still have our bodies, but we have a new heart. And I think that uh, as the church gets back to being its own institution, being willing to stand on the principles of scripture and its jurisdiction. So all those churches that stayed open said, sorry, state, you can't tell us to disobey God. We're here for our sheep. We're here for our flock and we've got a job to do. And I think the more that that gets asserted in a kind, loving way, we might actually see some converts coming out of those who would not have put themselves in our ranks. Yes. And I think the key there is the attitude by which we as followers of Jesus are to manifest that type of resistance. Resistance is necessary, uh, but it's our Lord and his early followers that showed us the path by which that is to be done. And that's not to say we should become doormats, uh, but on the other hand, you know, we are to manifest a spirit of love and Christian compassion, but at the same time, a firm commitment to say, you know, we cannot go down that path and we will not uh, because we obey God rather than men. And so, that is why we will not suspend our church services. We will not stop singing to the Lord. And, uh, you know, we we will take whatever consequences come, but we are more concerned about obeying God Almighty than obeying the dictates of the state, however well pretended they may be to our benefit. Right. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And I wish more churches would make a practice of, and I know a lot do, having as a group recite and pray the Lord's Prayer, because the Lord's Prayer isn't our Father who art in heaven, we can't wait to get there. It's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. In other words, we're down here and we want the kingdom here. Not this idea that the worse it gets, the sooner we get to leave, I don't know about you, Charles, but the people that I'm closest to are the people who are saying, no, I'm going to stand my ground. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get pushed down sometimes, but if you're waiting for the escape as opposed to seeing the kingdom come, and even if you won't see it in your own lifetime, if you can visualize it, because you know what? When God spoke to Abraham and told him that his descendants would outnumber the grains of sand and the stars in the sky— Abraham had to see it by faith, not because he actually got to see all of us who we are. I think it is highly significant that among those people who call themselves Christians who are the most critical of those of us who take Jesus' words in the Great Commission most seriously about making the nations Christ's disciples by the power of his spirit, of course, are, are those who don't repeat the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. Uh, You've got some who I I mentioned earlier, you know, oh, you people think you're going to bring in the kingdom. Well, when you pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you know, that's not something you want to hear every Sunday. I know of a certain, um, I'll just say ecclesiastical situation in which uh, the pastor has proclaimed from the pulpit that there's no such thing as Christian politics, Christian education, Christian this, Christian that. And it is a pietistic emphasis in that church. And so also I happen to know that at one time in that particular congregation, the Lord's Prayer was repeated every Lord's Day, as were 
as was the confessing of the faith by means of the historic creeds of the church. You know, all of these things connect us to believers from the past, and it recognizes there is this continuity, this forward movement of Christ's kingdom. And so when people find themselves in context like that, where, oh, no, no, we don't say the Lord's Prayer. Well, why not? Or, or we don't do these useless creeds and confessions. It's worth, well worth asking, uh, why aren't those things there? And what is the problem with doing that? Well, I think it goes back to a recognition that the reason that the Bible had to be removed from schools was because people might read it and they might understand it and then they might apply it. And so, of course, that would be contrary to a status position. Well, when you won't say the Lord's Prayer and declare that Jesus told us to pray that the kingdom comes on earth and that we have um, not only a job to do, but that prayer tells us how we deal with people we have disagreements with and how we pursue our livelihood and what we should be praying for and recognizing that we're sinners. Well, by the same token, if you recite the Apostles' Creed, you, in the first sentence, declare God as creator, which, of course, throws a monkey wrench into those who believe in evolution. So the solution has been take away the texts, take away the thing that actually will speak to people because it's a living word and these are living doctrines. And people hopefully will realize that they've been censored in their churches from knowing what the church that helped create Western civilization believed and acted upon. Yes, and I think that is a very important point. And as I said, people need to ask themselves, you know, what ultimately is the reason behind this? And some people pat themselves on the back and say, well, you know, we don't do that because we're New Testament Christians. We only go by what uh, the Bible says, as if none of these things are in any way connected to Holy Scripture. And it comes down to many, what we've talked about many times in, the, in these discussions, and that is an overemphasis on an interior spiritual pietistic life that is inward focused or focused on some disembodied heavenly existence rather than on this world in which the Lord has placed us to um, increase and multiply and to occupy until he comes. That's another statement that you don't hear too often in churches anymore because you've got to find out, well, what does it mean to occupy, you see? And certainly the Lord's Prayer and the creeds give us some understanding of those things. I, I don't mean to major on that, that, that there are other things that are equally important in terms of worship and, and things such as that. But we've lost something in many of our churches and, and family connections by not uh, maintaining this continuity with believers who've gone before us. I remember years ago, uh, it might have been Dr. Ray Sutton who had mentioned that he had noticed in an Anglican prayer book that the, um, the lectionary at the time, I think the book was published, I don't, think, I don't think it was the original Book of Common Prayer, but it, it was a Book of Common Prayer that was published, I'll say maybe 1909 or something like that, but it had lectionary readings for the next 200 years, you know, and the point was these people fully understood, at least we can guess that they did, that they plan to be around that long and continue to pray God's word and read the scriptures uh, on a regular basis, because that's what they were doing, occupying until he came. 
You know, a concept that I would hear and I would not understand, and it's not to my credit that I didn't ask people when I heard it, but I know it's not an uncommon thing for people new to the faith to hear all sorts of things and not want to reveal that they don't understand. But I would hear the church militant and the church triumphant. And I was like, wait, which one am I in? I, I don't understand exactly. And obviously, the church triumphant would be those who have lived their life and passed and now are in the presence of God. But for those of us who are still here, the referral was to the church militant. In other words, it wasn't the church complacent. It was the church militant, meaning that <laughs> we knew what we were supposed to be doing. Yes, and I think that this has been a struggle uh, over the years. And I have to confess, I've been in so-called professional ministry for almost 30 years now, and I'm not even sure what the ultimate solution is. I mean, obviously, Scripture tells us what we're to be doing, but how do you maintain this committed, if not militant, attitude of occupying until he comes, doing all the things that Scripture tells us to do in terms of having an impact in this world? Because when we say occupy till he comes, well, what he's coming to and for is a renewed earth. You know, contrary to the dispensational rapture position, our future, if we are believers, is not again in some floating on a cloud playing a harp. You know, it's this world that's going to be and is the domain of God. And the, the imagery right out of the book of Revelation is that the new Jerusalem is coming down, not going up. And so this is our future. And the church all too often becomes complacent. Uh, either into some sort of civic religion that has a veneer of Christianity. And so it takes us right around back to where we started and that uh, how much easier it is in, a, in an attitude of complacency to think that I have done my Christian duty by going out and voting for a certain candidate. All the while, I'm doing other things that are completely contrary to what God would have his church, his Christian families doing. Well, I remember people telling me a couple of things that shocked me. One was one woman told me years ago that her Christian service was listening to Rush Limbaugh. That's, that's what she did. <laughs> yes. and, and, and then another person told me that her Christian service was back in 92. Uh, she voted for Bill Clinton because that would mean that the rapture would happen sooner. So very, very shallow understandings of what Christian service means. But I think when you say you don't know what the solution is, I think you do know what the solution is. I think all of us know what the solution is, but sometimes it seems that the hurdles are too big to overcome. And I believe it starts with making sure you're looking through the glasses of faith and not what you see or what people are telling you what's happening because what people say is happening is not necessarily what's happening. And so you have an approach that says God's word says this and I believe it, but I have to believe it. I can't just say it. I have to believe it. And even if I can't verify it, there's lots of things in the faith we can't verify. But I think, Charles, and tell me if I'm wrong here, it goes back to this concept of God's infallibility. If God is infallible, which the scripture clearly states all the way through that he is, we have to understand that 
we're never going to be him. We're fallible. Even when we experience the resurrection and we're in his presence, we're not going to be infallible. We reflect what he, we reflect his light. So I think if we embrace that, then none of our efforts will be in vain because we'll be self-consciously doing what we've been called to do. Yeah. And just to uh, correct myself and to uh, thank you for your statement. Yeah. I mean, on one level, I certainly do know what the solution is. What I was attempting to say is that in, in working through this issue about avoiding the complacency and keeping things in, in the, on the right spot in terms of what our priorities are, people have sought different means of addressing those issues. For example, uh, I'm going to leave this dispensational church, for example, and go to this reformed church, or I'm going to go to this Calvinistic, or I'm going to leave this Calvinistic or reformed church, and I'm going to start a house church, or I'm going to get out of the house church and go do this thing or that. So there are all these different approaches, and usually those are motivated by some desire to be more faithful that uh, does not appear to be um, a workable solution or a workable possibility in the context that people find themselves in. I think it begins with us individually, like so much else does, that regardless of where we are in terms of our, say, church affiliation, our family life, if we are biblical Christians, then we begin by governing ourselves according to these things and in a charitable spirit, helping others to understand. It's like somebody said, you, you can't obey your way out of tyranny. I posted that meme recently. Somebody else had it. I think it's a good sentiment. And by the same token, uh, we can't vote our way politically into salvation. And you talk about people who will go from one way of worshiping one denomination to another. The rule of thumb that I've used is that once we have settled in a place, then we do all we can to share this victorious view that the Bible teaches. And we go and remain in this place for as long as we're bearing fruit there. And so there have been many times throughout my family's life that we have been participants in various denominations. And I'm not sure we've gotten through all of them, but we've been through many of them. And there comes a point where either the leaders or the heads of the church say, we don't really want you to talk about this anymore. You can stay here if you don't say this anymore. And then we take that as, you know, an indication that maybe it's time to move on. But individual Christians are responsible to bear fruit and just going from one place to another, pointing out everything that's wrong about a particular place. I don't know that anybody couldn't find something wrong about just about everybody. It's the question of whether or not you can advance the kingdom and are you finding that you are producing good fruit? Criticism is not one of the spiritual gifts, is it? <laughs> Yet some people think that's their, their gift and calling. And what you just described there is uh, another phrase for that is that you were shown the left foot of fellowship, right? But, you know, the solution to many of these things is, Pastor, why don't you do this? Or why didn't you say that? Or what, what will you please stop quoting this writer or whatever? But rather than say, to the elders or to the pastor or whatever, I really have uh, a desire that I believe is a biblical one to start this particular type of ministry to young women or young men or whatever it may be. There's a, 
a public library down the road, then I'm, they're not averse to me starting a Bible study. You know, this sort of approach to things is a way that we can promote the message of God's kingdom, the kingdom message that will get us further down the path to recognizing the true means by which the Lord will bring deliverance and prosperity and blessing to his people in this world. Indeed. The expression that I like is he who serves leads. And so start off in a congregation or a group, be willing to do the job no one else wants to do. Demonstrate that you are willing to participate, not I'll stay here if you recognize how smart I am. I look at it as I'll stay here if I can serve the Lord with this group of people. If I can't, and if all I'm left with are critical thoughts, or this is wrong, that is wrong, then I best leave because I won't help that congregation one bit if I'm sitting in judgment. I remember many, many years ago now when uh, I was a member of a church in a different state, totally different denomination. This is a church that had located to another part of the city and started to grow like crazy. This was back in the 1970s. It was an older congregation, but they were growing by leaps and bounds with younger folks. And there was a very devout, kindly gentleman who taught the adult Sunday school class that he had done for many, many years. And he always taught that class in the church auditorium, the church sanctuary. Well, in the new location, he continued to do that. But there were one or two other men who began teaching classes, and some of them began to dwarf his in size. And so they needed a, a different place. Uh, than one of the Sunday school rooms. And so they informed this gentleman that they were going to move his class, the elder board did, into the Sunday school room, and they would move Mr. So-and-so's class into the sanctuary. Oh, my word. <laughs> that, was, that was the end of it. He had never been so insulted in all of his life. So rather than praise the Lord that there was this growth that was taken personally. So yeah, that, and then that's an example of where you know sometimes the Lord challenges us to recognize that he will do things his way, and it may mean a change for us that doesn't keep the spotlight on us, and it requires humility and, uh, uh, and obedience to his will. Right. We sometimes have to become less so God can become more. Amen. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, Charles. I hope we've encouraged people. It's not that we don't want you to celebrate. It's celebrate the advancement of God's kingdom and sometimes political victories are steps along the way. But always, when you bring a discussion with people, whether these are secular alliances or not, that you bring your faith into the discussion. Never let it be said that someone says, oh, that person's a believer? I never would have known. And as Pastor Moorcraft reminded us a couple of years ago, when you go in the voting booth, don't throw the Bible out behind you on the floor. Indeed. Thanks, everybody, for joining us again. As always, if you want to comment or make a suggestion on what we might discuss, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Charles. Talk to you next time. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.